Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 94, Grape Expectations, to talk about the chemistry of wine and the European wine scandals of 1985 to 1986. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. We haven't talked a lot about biochemistry since the DNA and RNA episodes a while back. One of the great biochemical discoveries known in ancient times was the transformation of fruit juices into wine. Generally, wine is made from grape juice but you can also make wine from juices of currants, cherries, pomegranates, elderberries, and plums, for example. The earliest known winemaking is prehistoric, perhaps up to 8,000 years old in Georgia and 7,000 years old in Persia. Even the word wine itself is prehistoric, going back to the Proto-Indo-European stem wino, attested in ancient Greek and even Hittite. Debate exists among linguists about whether the similarity in Semitic languages, such as Hebrew yayin, means there is a common origin, or borrowing from one language group to another. I should note that mead, also called honey wine, is made from honey and water, to which fruits, grains, or spices might be added. Mead seems to be even older than true fruit wines, but our concern here is with wines, specifically those made with grapes. To make wine, a fungus called yeast eats the sugar contained in the grape juices, converting it to waste products, the chemicals ethanol and carbon dioxide, while generating heat in the process. But the biochemical basis for making wine was entirely unknown till modern times. The structure of yeast itself wasn't actually seen until Antony von Leeuwenhoek viewed the cells under his primitive new microscope in 1680, but he did not consider yeast to be living. Leeuwenhoek reported, quote, I have made several observations concerning yeast and seen throughout that the aforesaid consists of globules floating through a clear substance, which I judged to be beer. In addition, I saw clearly that every globule of yeast in turn existed of six distinct globules, and that just of the same size and fabric as the globules of our blood. Samuel Johnson, in 1755, defined yeast in his groundbreaking Dictionary of the English Language as, quote, the ferment put into drink to make it work, and into bread to lighten and swell it, unquote. Exactly how that worked was unknown. A century later is when Lavoisier himself first made the chemical equation of grape must, that is, yeast, is alcohol plus carbonic acid, what we call now carbon dioxide. Specifically, he concluded, using his conservation of mass idea, that two-thirds of the sugar in grapes became ethanol, 
and one third became carbon dioxide. At best, yeast was thought to be an initiator of the reaction, but was unchanged during the process. Recall that catalysis was still not known back then. Several decades later, in 1815, Gay-Lussac was trying a new method of preserving food from Nicolas Aper, which meant boiling the food in a container and then sealing it tightly. Gay-Lussac found that grape juice never fermented if treated this way, but then if you added yeast to the juice after cooling the juice, the juice fermented. Gay-Lussac also improved Lavoisier's analysis of fermentation products to give a value almost exactly what we know now. By weight, 100 grams of glucose, sugar, become 51 grams of ethanol and 49 grams of carbon dioxide. So clearly, yeast was absolutely required, but why was still unclear. By 1835, a French inventor named Charles Cagnard de la Tour watched yeast under an improved microscope as fermentation occurred. His microscope allowed about one micrometer of resolution, about five times better than that of 1807. He observed that the yeast globules reproduce by budding off smaller globules, concluding that they are living creatures. The German biologist Theodor Schwann described yeast as a fungus, giving it the name Zuckerpilz, sugar fungus. By 1838, Julius Mayen translated that into yeast's official biological name, Saccharomyces. But what part yeast played in fermentation was still unclear. Only in the 1850s did things start to gel into a reasonable model with Louis Pasteur. Pasteur experimented on fermentation for some time and discovered that there was more to fermentation than just ethanol and carbon dioxide. Among the products he discovered were glycerin, succinic acid, and amylic acid—all organic molecules, which meant. The process was an organic reaction. He found that yeast multiplied in parallel to fermentation. The conclusions he published in 1857 and 1860 were that yeast must be alive to give fermentation, and fermentation happens because of yeast multiplying. A second observation from Pasteur came from help a distiller needed with his process. The distillery made alcohol from beet sugar, but he was getting off flavors from his results, something like sour milk. Pasteur found that the product wasn't alcohol at all, but lactic acid, and that the fermentation vats where this happened contained living cells smaller than yeast, that is, bacteria. Pasteur had discovered the second type of fermentation. That which bacteria make into lactic acid. German physiologist Wilhelm Kühne came up with the word enzyme in 1878, from Greek enzymon in leaven, to describe this process, which eventually was used to talk about non-living chemicals that convert one biochemical to another. 
fermentation continued to be used for living creatures that do this, which led to German biochemist Eduard Büchner's work in 1897 on non-living extracts of yeast to ferment sugars into ethanol and carbon dioxide. So Büchner called the yeasty chemical zymase. All enzymes now are named with the ace, A-S-E ending. For example, you might find in your pharmacy or supermarket lactase, which is a non-living enzyme that breaks apart the milk sugar lactose into two smaller sugars, doing the job that lactose intolerant people cannot. Büchner's work finally fused the two biological camps of the vitalists and the chemicalists. That is, enzymes did the fermentation, but the enzymes were synthesized in living creatures. And Büchner was another casualty of the Great War, World War One. He joined the German army and was sent to Romania as a major. He was wounded and died of his injuries in 1917. Further research on zymase showed that it was not a single enzyme, but a mixture of enzymes, including pyruvate decarboxylase and alcohol dehydrogenase, plus some other enzymes. From the 1920s to 1940s, continued biochemical research showed that a necessary chemical, adenosine triphosphate, or ATP. Was the primary way to transfer energy in cells used by proteins and other enzymes in internal cell processes. For us dealing with fermentation, the first pathway in cellular metabolism to be figured out was glycolysis. This is a word derived from Greek meaning breaking up of one molecule of glucose, a sugar with six carbon atoms. Into two molecules of pyruvic acid with three carbon atoms each. Ten chemical reactions in a sequence make the two pyruvic acid molecules. During the sequence, there are two redox reactions, in each of which one molecule loses electrons, gets oxidized, and one molecule gains electrons, gets reduced. During the sequence. A molecule abbreviated NADH carries electrons and has to be rebuilt to continue the sequence without end. Glycolysis is thought to be one of the oldest biochemical sequences because it can operate without an oxygen molecule. The early Earth over three billion years ago likely had no free oxygen in its atmosphere. So this anaerobic glycolysis was probably the way all cells metabolized to keep energy going. We now understand that the two fermentation pathways, yeast or bacteria, are two separate biochemical routes. One takes pyruvic acid and converts it into ethanol, used in the spirits industry with yeast involved. The other is the bacterial form, giving lactic acid. And is also possible in other animals. Both processes emit carbon dioxide, which is how yeast makes bread rise. The small bubbles of carbon dioxide gas expand the dough as the yeast metabolizes the sugar in the dough. We'll be right back. 
Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior with your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. Of course, from the yeast's perspective, as the yeast grows and eats sugar, it makes waste, which is the carbon dioxide bubbles in fizzy wines and beers and alcohol, which gives spirits their kick for people. Eventually, the alcohol, which is toxic to yeast, will kill the fungus. The concentration at which this death occurs is somewhere between 10 and 15% in solution. So this is why most wines and beers have an alcohol concentration at or below this value. Different yeast varieties can tolerate more or less alcohol. So perhaps you can get up to 21% alcohol if you really push the fermentation. Let's now turn to wine itself, which is obviously more than just alcohol in water. About 84% of wine is the solvent, water, and around 13% of wine is a solute, ethanol. There are other flavoring and coloring molecules floating in a wine solution, making up around 3% of the rest. Of course, over the course of the 20th century, the composition of wine has become better and better understood. We have to specify whether the wine is red, white, or rosé. Whites are made by fermenting grape juice, while reds include skins and seeds of the grape. One of the main differences chemically between white and red is the concentration of phenolic compounds, that is, those chemical compounds containing at least one benzene ring, or phenolic ring, as it is often called. The skins and seeds of grapes contain such compounds so that if we add up all the phenolic molecules' concentrations, and compare white versus red wine, reds have 10 times the phenolic concentration at about 2 grams per liter, compared with 0.2 grams per liter of white wine. Among such phenolic compounds are catechin, gallic acid, and epigallocatechin gallate. Catechin has two benzene rings, gallic acid has one, Epigallocatechin gallate has three benzene rings. These are only the top three found in red wines. There are many more. They not only affect the color, but also the flavor of wines. For example, the smaller tannins are known as bitter-flavored molecules. Exact composition of wines depends on the variety of grapes and the way the grapes are handled. This is why wine flavors vary from one vintner to the next, from one year to the next, and perhaps from bottle to bottle. So, 
Besides the phenolic compounds, there are also sugars, amino acids, other organic acids, perhaps other alcoholic molecules, some minerals, and even glycerol. Let's examine these non-phenolic components. Organic acids are acids built as organic molecules, that is, mostly carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen atoms. They do make the wine more acidic and tartar, of course, to the point of sending the pH perhaps below 4. The organic acid most prevalent is tartaric acid, the acid that Louis Pasteur used to find dextro and levorotatory forms, which appears at around 2.5 to 5 grams per liter in grapes. Next most common is malic acid at maybe 1 to 4 grams per liter and is also found in apples. Latin malum means apple. This acid can be eaten by some bacteria to make lactic acid, so is less stable in biochemistry. Citric acid, which is well known in citrus fruits too, and is part of the Krebs cycle, appears in grapes at around 1 gram per liter or less. If the wine goes bad, you can also get acetic acid, the active component of vinegar. In fact, vinegar comes from the old French phrase vin aigre, or sour wine. Grapes themselves have proteins, which are made of amino acid chains. Yeasts can feed on these proteins, so the proteins are digested to some degree and become incorporated into the yeast cells themselves. If vintners leave the dead yeast in the wine to age, the yeast proteins can return to the wine. These proteins include large molecules, the polysaccharides, which are starches. Red wines have tannin molecules, which can bond with the proteins, and these large complexes just precipitate out, so red wines have less protein. White wines, on the other hand, have low concentrations of tannins, so the proteins can't precipitate out. The proteins and starches in white wines remain and can sometimes cause the wine to get a hazy appearance. As all living creatures do, grapes also contain important elements for life, and these include potassium, perhaps the prime mineral, which can combine with tartaric acid to make potassium tartrate. The potassium tartrate can precipitate out as crystals on the bottom of the bottle. Other elements in grapes are calcium, magnesium, copper, and iron. Then there are other aromatic molecules that give extra body to the wine. These are less well understood, and there may be as many as 1,000 different chemicals in a wine. Some of these include esters, such as ethyl acetate, norisoprenoids, and methoxypyrazines. Finally, let's talk about sugar. All wine has sugar, which is the primary food for the yeast. How much sugar is left after the yeast is dead tells you if the wine is sweet or dry. Dry is generally below around 4 grams of sugars per liter of wine. If the sugar is about this concentration, then the wine has to be extra filtered in a sterile manner because if any yeast gets into the wine, it can ferment the extra sugars again. 
Vintners may add some permitted chemicals to improve the wine's appearance, stability, and clarity. To make a wine more acid, you can add more tartaric acid. To remove color, you can treat the wine with activated charcoal, a form of carbon that easily absorbs organic molecules. To make the wine less acid, you might add calcium carbonate or potassium bicarbonate. To preserve wine, often sulfur dioxide or sorbic acid might be added. All this brings us to the 1980s and some scandalous affairs with wine. First, we talk of the 1985 Austrian wine scandal. Back in the 1980s, some Austrian wineries were in contracts with German supermarket chains, but it seems that the vintners couldn't get enough quality grapes with the required sugar levels. So, how could they bring the wine up to snuff? In terms of sweetness, well, if you just add sugar, the sweetness increases, but overall the body of the wine would not be sufficient. So, someone—it is not clear exactly who—in the wine industry, perhaps a large-scale maker, began to add diethylene glycol instead. Diethylene glycol was once a common antifreeze for industries, including the automotive industry. But it also tastes sweet. A similar molecule, ethylene glycol, is also a more common antifreeze with a sweet flavor. This is why you should be careful when adding antifreeze to your car. If you spill it, pets or other animals will lick it up and get sick, perhaps dying. In the case of Austrian wines. The typical adulterated level was a few grams of diethylene glycol per liter of wine, which is nowhere near a fatal dose. You'd have to drink a dozen bottles fast to hurt yourself seriously. A bottle of a 1983 wine in Stuttgart was first found in June 1985 to contain diethylene glycol. One 1981 bottle did have 48 grams per liter. Which was a lethal dose. By July 1985, the German Health Ministry warned against drinking Austrian wines, and then Austrian wine exports dropped by 90 percent as countries around the world confiscated wines. 36 million bottles of Austrian wine were confiscated and destroyed, but you couldn't pour it down the drain because that would be an environmental hazard. The result was that the wine became a cooling liquid in a cement plant. But Europe wasn't done with wine scandals. The following year, some Italian vintners wanted to raise their wine's alcohol level. There was an overproduction in the early 1980s, and wineries felt compelled to palm off junky wine on the public. The main culprit was Ciravegna. Which added two and a half tons of methanol into their wines between December 1985 and March 1986. Methanol is highly toxic, but was a useful chemical, starting material, and good fuel, exempt from taxation in the European Union. The contamination was discovered that March. 
Italian authorities confiscated 25 million liters, and essentially Italy gravitated toward beer that summer. Even so, 24 people were killed from this adulteration. Wine exports dropped nearly 40%. In our next episode, the search for new polymers didn't stop in the 1980s, and we learn about new plastics to appear on the market during this decade. Until then, brave the elements! Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.